Welcome. You're listening to the Legal Business World podcast series. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for making some time available for this podcast. Uh, to start, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your career, etc.? It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm Mark Cohen, and uh, I am based in Washington, D.C. in the United States, although my interests extend well beyond the borders of uh, Washington, not only domestically, but also internationally. I have uh, been around for quite some time in the legal arena, and when I say legal, I mean legal and business, because I think that uh, increasingly the boundaries between law and other knowledge-based services are becoming uh, blurred, as I believe they should be. I started out my career as a civil trial lawyer. I had the privilege of representing the United States of America as an assistant United States attorney, and I tried 20 major uh, federal cases as a young lawyer um, representing different agencies of the federal government, uh, having the opportunity to go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court on one such case. I then went into uh, private practice. I had the rather unusual career trajectory of never having been an associate. I went directly in as a partner at a a large law firm, a firm called Finley Cumble, uh, which at the time was the second largest law firm in the United States uh, and probably among the largest law firms in the world. I was a partner there for three years and um, I realized very quickly that um, being a partner in a large law firm had some very good aspects to it and some things that I didn't particularly care for. What was good about it was that uh, the founders of this firm had a great vision for uh, scaling uh, a brand and a firm, and they appreciated that this is going back into the early 80s, that to service the kinds of clients that the firm had or wanted to have, uh, they needed coverage throughout the United States, and then ultimately uh, in some foreign markets as well, uh, principally at that time, major European capital cities. So I learned firsthand from the managing partners, you know, sort of some of the vision and some of what it takes to create a national firm, which, you know, sort of grew to be the template for today's international firm. And um, I was with the firm for about three years, decided for various reasons I did not want to be on its management committee. Uh, which in retrospect turned out to be a good decision because two years later the firm had a very dramatic end. It, it was the first major law firm bankruptcy in U.S. history. And uh, I started my own boutique law firm, which I ran for about uh, 15, 16 years. I was fortunate that uh, I personally represented over 60 Fortune 500 companies, five foreign sovereign governments. I was involved with what people today call bet the company litigation, large class actions, multi-district litigation, litigation involving uh, cross-border uh, disputes, a lot of very interesting things. I had about at its zenith 30 lawyers working for me in three different offices. Um, I think what I'm most proud of uh, was not only uh, the quality and value of our representation to our clients, but also the fact that 
back 25 years ago, I pioneered flex time, uh, particularly for female attorneys. I believed in uh, fixed price billing uh, and implemented it for a number of clients. And uh, I was an early adapter of technology in the delivery of legal services and saw what technology could do to transcend geography and to uh, basically provide the ability to scale and to more efficiently and economically deliver legal services. I went to AT&T, who was at that time one of my large clients, and asked them how metaphysically I could be in all three of my offices, Miami, New York, and Washington, D.C., uh, at one time, uh, and how we might be able to have a centralized library on disks instead of three cloth libraries. And so uh, with AT&T's help, I invested a million dollars of my own money over a T1 line to create a virtual law library. This is back in 1991 to create a centralized attendant where whether it was New York, Miami, or DC, uh, the same chirpy voice came on as uh, a receptionist, whatever number you called. And we had video conferencing and were working as uh, teams from remote locations. And so this gave me uh, my first glimpse in terms of how uh, technology uh, might be able to really change um, the way legal services are delivered. Following my uh, career in private practice, uh, I decided that I wanted to reinvent myself. And so I retired from the active practice of law where I was taking on individual clients, but I remained very interested in um, the delivery of legal services. And so after a short uh, self-granted sabbatical where I focused on uh, not-for-profit activities and charitable activities, uh, I returned and started an early legal process outsourcing company called Qualitas, where we uh, basically reviewed documents um, uh, using uh, our technology. Uh, the documents were reviewed in India and the Caribbean Basin, and this was one of the early so-called LPOs, legal process outsource companies. I ran that company for about three or four years and then a friend of mine who was in the legal staffing business uh, came to me showed me an article in the financial times of london about clementi report and um, uh, the british election to uh, allow alternate business structures which you know essentially opened the door for uh, non-lawyers to invest in law firms and for law firms to have a lot greater financial flexibility uh, in terms of how they operated. Um, he asked me whether I thought that there was a business opportunity there and I said, let me study it. So study it we did and um, a couple of years later and uh, lots of investment dollars later, we founded a, a company called Clearspire. Uh, which was globally watched. I think what made it very unique was the fact that the United States did not adopt an ABS model, um, meaning that lawyers could not share profits or um, uh, engage directly uh, with non-lawyers in the operation of a law firm. Uh, however, we sort of effectively got around this by uh, creating a two-company model. One company was a end-to-end uh, -end diversified legal services company, one part of Clearspire, uh, whose centerpiece was a proprietary web-enabled IT platform 
uh, which we called CORAL, an ecosystem that allowed lawyers uh, to work in a very seamless fashion, but um, in remote locations. And that really reduced our need for a large office space. Um, <clears throat> ClearSpire um, operated effectively for about almost eight years. I sold off the technology of the company um, and placed the lawyers in the law firm of the company into other firms. I turned my uh, teaching, uh, my focus to uh, teaching and uh, teaching at Georgetown Law School, specifically uh, what I called contemporarily relevant courses, uh, skill sets that lawyers I thought needed to know, things like project management, things like um, what's going on in the legal marketplace today, and you know why has it changed, how has it changed, and where are the opportunities. I started uh, writing a lot. Um, as I'm fond of saying, if you can't write well, then write prolifically. And uh, I wrote prolifically. Um, I now write for your publication from time to time. Also do a weekly column for Forbes. I've been in Bloomberg, uh, a number of other sources. Um, I've been engaged in extensive speaking, principally on uh, topics involving legal innovation and the structure and delivery of legal services. So. Um, that is sort of my professional persona. Uh, my, my personal uh, passions are uh, eclectic um, and, and, and many. Um, I love music, uh, I love uh, dance, I love gardening, I love my daughters, I, I even love my wife, and uh, I'm very active in a number of um, uh, community affairs. Uh, I do not define myself so much as uh, being a lawyer, but I think being a lawyer is something that has permeated a lot of my different professional uh, activities and something which I guess, like the mafia, uh, one never completely uh, escapes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, well, thanks, Mark. Uh, that's a very interesting and uh, an impressive career, if I may say so. Something else. In some recent articles, you talk about innovation being a three-legged stool. Can you explain what you exactly mean with this uh, three-legged stool and elaborate on innovation itself and your vision on innovation in the legal market? Sure. Um, well, before describing um, the elements of the three-legged stool, let me you know go back in time um, to probably about 15 years ago yeah. um, and say that back then, lawyers in the delivery of legal services were principally delivered by law firms. Law firms in the United States had about a 95% market share uh, going back 15, 20 years. Those numbers today are probably more of a 55% market share, uh, 40% uh, going to in-house legal departments and uh, the rest to legal service providers and a myriad of others uh, who have come into the marketplace. So uh, law firms used to sell just one skill uh, and that was legal expertise. And they had a virtual monopoly on it. So that's really why uh, they held the dominant position that they did for so many years. But more recently, uh, with the emergence of technology, which I would argue is no longer a uh, vertical, but it's more of a horizontal that permeates across everything um, in business and indeed life. 
that with the advent of technology and with its, um, you know, sort of concomitant um, requirement that there be enhanced process management to be able to better mine um, the proliferation of data created by um, this technology. Law has now, uh, and legal delivery, has now morphed from uh, being just a, a, a discipline that required uh, legal expertise now to becoming um, a discipline that requires both legal expertise, uh, technological knowledge, uh, as well as process management skill. And uh, one without the other two is not going to be terribly effective. And uh, so that's what I mean by um, legal delivery now being a three-legged student. Yeah, very clear. And can you give us some examples? Well, sure. I, I could cite uh, several of them, but I think that um, w what you're finding now is that um, I'll give you two examples. One was ClearSpire, um, where you know our um, legal expertise was housed in the law firm. Um, our technological expertise and our process management expertise were housed in the, the service company, uh, the integrated service company that provided, you know, sort of the, the, the back end support uh, for the law firm. So that would be probably the first such example that I could cite. Um, some of the other examples I think might surprise you. Um, one example, the first really that comes to mind would be the big four in that outside of the United States, as you probably know, uh, where the big four certainly are involved in the legal space, but for regulatory issues do not presently engage in the practice of law or operate as law firms, um, but rather as consultants and legal service providers. And by the way, the distinction at times can be quite blurred. Outside of the United States, the big four uh, operate <clears throat> law firms, and I would say that they do it in as three-legged a stool away as one could imagine, because after all, um, they are very far advanced in technology, much more so than, than law firms, and certainly they are process experts um, in ways that you know law firms are not, and you might say, well, why do you say that you know they, they have eclipsed uh, law firms in those areas? It's because until recently, uh, law firms really didn't have to concern themselves with those kinds of skill sets. So law firms are really, you know, in a way, uh, playing catch up uh, in those areas. So those would be a couple of examples of um, uh, operations of the three-legged stool. Um, law firms are now in the curious position of having to decide, frankly, whether they are better served by uh, themselves supplying the three legs of the stool or whether they might want to best collaborate with others uh, with perhaps more advanced expertise uh, in the technology or in the process than they presently have. And you can find any number of different ways that uh, different law firms have sought to, you know, address this issue. Yes. And if we look at changing skills, the change in legal service, the change in demands, and so on, I think that we need to change the base of our legal profession, starting with education at our law schools. Don't you think so? 
Well, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, the answer is uh, yes with an exclamation, maybe two exclamations. Um, I, I Let me limit my uh, comments on legal education principally to the states. Uh, I do speak in Europe fairly regularly. I do know a little bit about European legal education. Um, but um, let me just focus for the moment um, principally on the states, although I do think that you know, there's some common challenges, um, certainly in Europe. Yeah. Um, so in legal education in the states, unfortunately, um, what you find is that um, the vast majority of law professors um, have themselves never engaged in the practice of law. Uh, they have gone directly from school to typically clerkships uh, with judges to maybe some sort of administrative role and then um, into the academy. And so they really have virtually no experience or understanding of what it means to be a practicing lawyer. Um, and as a consequence, uh, very few of them really do have an understanding of what's going on in the marketplace. So for them, you know, the marketplace is this faraway land um, that they have rarely visited. And many law professors, particularly in the States, um, I've found have an active disdain for people who are practitioners. They think of them somehow as a, a, a lesser, you know, form of lawyer. Almost the way, you know, some people who have white collar positions, in my mind, very inappropriately, are can be dismissive of people who, you know, have blue collar. Uh, positions. But that's just sort of the mindset of the legal academy. And I think it's only recently that certain law schools looking at, you know, the decline in admissions, looking at the uh, problem in terms of employment placement, looking at um, the fact that the marketplace is, you know, telling them loud and clear that it is not any longer willing or able to pay to subsidize their untrained, unprepared graduates. I think uh, finally law schools are beginning to put all these things together and say, well, maybe now we really do have to uh, make some upgrades into our curriculum to start training lawyers for the kinds of functions um, they are going to need to have today as opposed to the way it was. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And some of those functions include, I don't think they necessarily have to um, be technologists per se, but they certainly have to be um, uh, 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 conversant with technology because to practice law today means that you're going to have to use technology to a certain degree. And you're certainly going to have to understand some of the you know, benefits as well as some of the potential um, uh, uh, risks of technology, for example, cybersecurity. So um, law schools are going to have to take, in my mind, a far more holistic interdisciplinary approach, um, one that continues to um, uh, uh, steep uh, law students in um, a doctrinal learning, but equally uh, exposes them to what's going on in the marketplace and uh, starts to um, uh, uh, allow them to develop uh, skills in terms of how to interact with clients, how to effectively use social media, uh, how to uh, 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 adapt um, project and process management principles to what they're doing, um, and, and certainly a familiarity with technology. Yeah. 
So can you say that it all boils down to retuning or modernizing legal education to the state of the legal market nowadays and the near future? Yes, very yeah. directly. Yeah. I, I work with the dean and the vice dean at Georgetown um, to uh, basically assist in creating uh, courses that um, really uh, strive to provide uh, contemporary professional competency yeah. and skills required for the marketplace. Uh, that's uh, my exclusive focus uh, at Georgetown. And frankly, when I speak at other schools, whether it's Harvard or, or uh, University College London, where I'll be um, uh, in a couple of weeks, or, or anywhere else, uh, my focus really is on helping to introduce students to uh, what's going on in the marketplace because I think it's really important. Um, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you are. Unfortunately, I don't think that either law schools or uh, law firms uh, tend to focus enough on um, where the legal industry is now. Uh, because I think it's changing very quickly. Yeah, I think so. Mark, listening to this interview, one might come up with a simple question of what does it take for me to become an innovative lawyer, to profit from change? Is there a way to develop a skill set or a template or what steps should I take as a lawyer? And what would you suggest or, or what kind of advice would you give to this person? Well, I think that's a marvelous question, and um, I, I wish I could say that one size fit all, um, but it doesn't. And that, I view, is good news and bad news. So bad news means that by not, you know, sort of having a universal prescription that students could rely on, it's going to take more of an individuated approach, which means that I think students today, as never before, need uh, guidance, mentorship, career counseling, all of those things that maybe they didn't need quite as much before. The good news, however, is that, you know, law today as never before is, um, I think, uh, becoming a more open kind of a field. It used to be in law that, you know, it was very hierarchical. It was entirely driven by pedigree. And there was very little opportunity for um, lawyers to succeed if they didn't, um, you know, sort of go along with the program and um, do exactly what, you know, sort of the established order wanted them to do. Today, um, I just cite for you one example of two Harvard undergraduates who recently launched uh, a commercial litigation financing startup. Uh, by the name of Legalist. Uh, so here are two folks, they're not even lawyers yet, but they are tapping into artificial intelligence uh, and mining data from you know, 15,000 or 15 million or so cases uh, over 17 years um, that is going to form the basis of a litigation finance company. So imagine, you know, the, the new opportunities that exist for um, young lawyers and law students today who have an entrepreneurial spirit, who have, you know, uh, skills in technology and process. There are lots of new opportunities and different ways for lawyers to succeed um, today 
that were simply not open years ago. And while most of the press seems to focus on decrying the changes in law firms, I think what you know equally is happening is that a lot of lawyers, uh, depending on you know sort of what special skills and trainings and qualities that they have, uh, apart from going to law school, that there are opportunities for those people and a wider swath of people than had previously existed. I think that's the very good news. Yeah, it sure is. We also received a question from one of our readers, and she is wondering if there actually is a difference, besides larger budgets, between big law, medium law, and small law firms, if we look at the innovative possibilities. Well, I think, first of all, I commend your reader for a very thoughtful, interesting question. Uh, I think that there are very uh, salient differences between and among them. So let's start first with large law firms. Um, large law firms typically have, um, you know, very common structure. It's a partnership model. And um, large law firms, which, of course, for a very long time, you know, have enjoyed uh, not only a virtual monopoly on corporate legal work, uh, which is now, as we've, we've talked about, coming to an end, But large law firms also have a structure which is going to be very difficult to retrofit. And by that, I mean that to be able to sustain uh, profit per partner, which seems to be, you know, the, 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 the seminal metric by which large law firms operate, they can no longer rely on, you know, sort of associate leverage the way they used to. So they're going to have to come up with different solutions. But at the end of the day, it's going to be very, very difficult for most large law firms, absent you know, a complete reboot, um, to be able to you know, kind of restructure themselves in a way that they can more efficiently and cost-effectively deliver legal services. Um, so I think <clears throat> that opens uh, up various opportunities Uh, for mid-sized and smaller law firms. Let's take mid-sized law firms. I think that mid-sized law firms, which generally have lower price points um, than um, large firms, but have more difficulty attracting the kind of marquee clients that some large law firms uh, are able to uh, have, uh, at least historically have had, Um, I think that you know excellent uh, mid-sized firms um, can begin to compete by utilizing, for example, social media for thought leadership, um, data to be able to you know sort of quantify their cost and their result, uh, to demonstrate you know that they really do have the level of excellence and can deliver it you know more for less that they can, you know, not, they don't necessarily have to buy the technology, but they can tap into the technology to use it in their delivery uh, of legal services effectively. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that there are several opportunities for mid-sized firms, maybe even consider joining a legal network um, so that they can, you know, sort of achieve um, a greater uh, potential scale and the ability to handle larger um, and more complex um, matters with other excellent uh, firms of their composition in, in other geographical areas. 
Um, I think all those uh, opportunities exist for thoughtful, creative, mid-sized firms. And finally, for smaller firms, I think um, you know a lot of those firms are saying, well, technology is going to put us out of business. Um, I see it a little bit differently. I spent three days with the senior uh, management team uh, and founders of uh, LegalZoom out in California recently, and I gave a talk to their lawyers at their annual conference. And um, I think that LegalZoom, let's just uh, say that their document, uh, their core document business now has a closing in on 4 million customers. 4 million customers and over 1 million small businesses. Now, a lot of people at small firms might look at that with despair and say, they're killing us. They're driving us out of business. The reality of it is, is that LegalZoom also has panels of lawyers. And uh, although LegalZoom does not engage in the practice of law, LegalZoom provides the technological backup and support for those lawyers. Um, and they also help lawyers greatly in terms of customer relations and customer satisfaction, being careful not to practice law. As a result, hundreds and hundreds of lawyers now are working on LegalZoom's panels and ultimately without you know, any kind of involvement with LegalZoom are going to many of those um, you know, panel engagements, which are basically you know, an hour or two on the phone uh, working with you know, people who have questions, morph into real life uh, legal engagements um, where you know, it, it, it's the lawyer's opportunity. And if LegalZoom, as I think it will be, and other companies like it, will be successful in resolving the, or, or at least make, taking a big bite out of the access to justice crisis, um, whereby millions and millions, tens of millions of people who can't afford legal services at present price points can get into the market with more efficient delivery, that means that there are millions and millions of potential clients for all these smaller firms. So I see you know, technology companies actually as being allies of uh, smaller law firms, potential collaborators with smaller law firms. And again, I think small law firms have to start thinking in terms of new possibilities and tapping into those new possibilities. But surely, surely, surely they, uh, as well as the larger firms, are going to have to be aware of that three-legged stool. Yeah, clear. Okay, Mark, thank you. It's a very interesting topic, and we could probably talk for hours and hours. But to conclude this interview, is there something else you'd like to share with our listeners on innovation or something related to this topic? Sure. Well, I, I have a friend who's a, a professor at Harvard, and she's writing a book on legal innovation. And I was very flattered that she uh, asked if she could interview me about it. And she said, um, you know, she asked a number of questions about innovation, and she asked me whether I thought, you know, it would be useful, you know, to try to quantify innovation. And, you know, for people to say, you know, how, how big an innovator is this? I, I think that, frankly, innovation is a word, and it is a word that describes, you know, change, and change is a process. Um, and I think what's more important than, you know, sort of focusing on innovation as an end to itself is to say, you know, to look at different um, models and different companies 
and different ways that um, a, a certain type of good or service um, is being uh, delivered better, faster, cheaper. That to me is innovation. It's almost as if you have to look after the fact uh, at Uber to be able to say, my goodness, what an innovative company, you know? And I think that the people who are involved with innovation are really, you know, rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty in the marketplace, trying to figure out ways to better serve consumers. Um, I, I think, you know, if there's one criticism I have generally of um, much of the legal profession is that, you know, heretofore, um, its metrics have been focused more on its own profitability than on things like results and customer satisfaction. And I think that as innovation continues in the legal field, what you're going to find is that the companies that are really, really servicing the clients um, are going to be looked upon as the true innovators. And it's not so much that, you know, they are changing law, rather they're changing the way it's delivered. And just to close by way of an example, compare, uh, if you will, Uber to taxi cabs, okay? In both cases, you know, drivers are, are, are performing the same function, right? Except one, they're using their own cars, the other, they're using a, a specially designated taxi. Um, but Uber, you know, really what makes Uber different from taxis is that, you know, they have thought from the consumer perspective of how can we deliver this same service in a more cost-effective, efficient, um, and easy-to-access way. And it was after the fact that Uber did this that people began to say, this is true innovation. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say, why can't there be more innovation in law? Well, I think you're beginning to see a lot of it. It's just that, you know, law has not yet seen its Uber. Um, it's been more incremental. In the next few years, I would not be surprised if, um, you know, there are existing companies out there um, that are going to be able to, you know, make the transformative changes in legal delivery, um, uh, much the same way that Uber has, um, you know, in the cab hailing business. And that's when we will be able to say, well, those, those are really the innovators. But the reality is, is that there are a lot of other people out there that are making that possible too. Yes. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and uh, information on the legal market with us. I definitely enjoyed talking to you. And for our listeners who like to learn more about you, about Mark Cohen and the business of law, uh, we publish uh, information and knowledge from Mark on a regular base. And Mark has his own knowledge base called LegalMosaic.com that is definitely worth visiting. So thank you again for listening to the Legal This World podcast. My name is Jude Peters, and I hope you will be back next time.